I'm Ruby Malone and welcome to Off Limits. This is a podcast about women in football, but with a twist. I'll be chatting to different women working across multiple roles in football about their work and experiences, with some male advocates thrown in there too. There will be super open and honest conversations about the nature of being a woman working in such a historically male-dominated industry and the men who truly help women feel they belong in it. We'll be talking being the odd one out, everyday sexism, the lack of investment in the women's game and everything in between. But don't worry, it won't all be negatives. We'll also touch on the great aspects of working in this fast-paced industry and we'll be having a bit of a laugh too. So today's guest is Kathy Long. Kathy has worked in football for more than 20 years, entering the industry when few women even thought of it as an option. She has held multiple roles at the Premier League, was a senior consultant for Tottenham's new stadium, worked at Women in Sport, and now runs her own safety briefing tech company. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast, Kathy. I so appreciate it. Um, it's great to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I guess we just better start from the beginning and go from there. So can you just tell us a bit about how you got into working in football? Yeah, I, I sort of got in by accident. It wasn't ever intentional. I, I got involved because I was an angry fan, I think, because after the Hillsborough disaster, I just, it sort of really woke my consciousness, I suppose, about the issues the football fans were facing and how badly people were treated. And I, I sort of, you know, I guess I'd been at school with with lots of the sort of lads who went to the football. I have to say they probably hadn't been my favourite people when I was in secondary school. <laughs> All these annoying lads. Um, but I suddenly felt very protective for them because it was, you know, mostly lads who were there. Although actually, if you look at the profile of who was Ellsbury, it's quite interesting because there was a lot of youngsters there. There were a lot of women, you know, it was quite mixed, but still, still predominantly men. And mm. I joined the Football Supporters Association. I saw Rogan Taylor on TV speaking so eloquently on behalf of all of these fans and you know they were based in Liverpool where I was and so I just went along to some meetings and I volunteered technically my first role in football was actually a volunteer at the they had a shop to sell all of the stuff that people brought basically to Anfield and to the town like you know people bring their scarves and posters and poems and all sorts of stuff and so they opened up a shop to basically sell it all to make money for the survivors and the bereaved, et cetera. And, um, and so, yeah, so I sort of helped out there on Saturdays whilst, whilst doing a normal job at the same time. Um, and I just got more and more involved, I guess. I edited their newsletter and things like that. And then we would be having meetings in London, you know, with the FA um, and then with the Premier League when they set up. And then when they set up the Premier League, um, we basically persuaded them, a group of us, that they needed to be talking to fans more. So they agreed to do that and embark on this programme of like having people basically go around and talk to the fans on a match day. And I was, yeah, and I ended up being one of those people. So that was where it all started. That's amazing. And and speaking of the Premier League, I mean, you worked in the Premier League for, um, so as Head of Policy, Diversity and Supporter Engagement, I believe was your title. You know, my, my, yeah, my job title changed so much over the years. Did <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I basically joined, yeah, I joined in 2000, I think. No, 2001. Um, and it was, I'd worked for the Football Supporters Association on the Fans Embassy Project at Euro 2000. 
Um, and and even carried on actually after my contract for volunteering because there were so many issues arising out of that tournament. And I was on this working group that the Home Office had on disorder and the future of sort of football support abroad in particular. And but I was I was turning up sort of with different hats on all of the time. Like I'd turn up at meetings and one day I'd be representing the Premier League because I was doing little bits of freelance work for them, or I would be representing Liverpool, or I would be representing the fans. And the Premier League said, You need to decide who you're working for, because this is getting really confusing. This is like one of those debating society things <laughs> where you have to, you know, debate all of these other arguments. So I guess they could, I guess they could see that I could see it from all sides, you know. Um, and I kept saying no, because I thought, no, this is much more fun, like being on the outside and just telling everybody else what to do. So much <laughs> easier than having to do it myself. But then I realized also that the status quo might not be an option. Yeah. If they were going to bring someone in to do this, the first thing they might do is fire the freelancer that got off the job. So, uh, yeah, I got smart to it and, and said yes, thinking, well, this is a bit of a career diversion, not what I was planning. And then I, yeah, I was there for 15 years. So it was quite a long diversion. That's incredible. And what was your dream before that? Was it once you had got involved with Hillsborough stuff, always to work in football? No, do you know, I, the other stuff I was doing was working in music and I loved the music industry. And that was totally what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be in. So the football stuff was was definitely my passion. You know, I was I was going to matches at a season ticket at Anfield and was definitely what I was interested in. But I, I just don't think I ever saw that there would be a career in football. So I just don't think I saw it as an option. I remember when I was at school, one of the girls getting work experience at Anfield and we all felt sorry for her. Really? Yeah, because then it just seemed like a dead end job. So, I mean, there weren't many people that would work in a football club and it don't know, it just seemed really like uncool and sort of really, yeah, it was so unfashionable then. Mm. And so, yeah, I don't think I ever thought there would be a career in that really. And do you think that was more specifically as a woman or just in gem or as a girl? Quite, quite possibly, quite possibly. Yeah, you know, with unconsciously without realising it, that may well have been a big part of it that you didn't see women and I doing jobs. And I guess I didn't think they did anything interesting because it just all seemed sort of like admin, you know? And I do think, I do think if you're, you know, Blake's probably had more ambition because if you've wanted to be a footballer, that's a whole different thing. And I just never wanted to be a footballer because it was just never an option. You know, it just wasn't something that you could even think about. So just never, never entered your head. So I suppose I saw things quite differently. But yeah, no, I'd, I'd have happily stayed working in music, but I was so passionate about the football stuff and loved it. So yeah, really when the opportunity came along, it was like, actually, yeah, this is brilliant, you know. So initially it was really, my job was probably something like research assistant or something, I can't quite remember actually, but it was really running that programme of fan engagement, as you would now know, but the term fan engagement didn't even exist, so... Amazing. And it was 2001, was it, you started at the Premier League? Yeah, 2001, yeah. That was really early on as well. Yeah, I mean, there were only about, I think there was something like 22 people at the Premier League when I started. And quite a few of them, like me, were new. There were quite a few that started around the same time as me. So it's odd because people would people would always assume that the Premier League was much bigger and would say things like, oh, I know someone who works at the Premier League. You probably don't know them. I think we practically live together like we're one family like we you know there's only a few of us and we see each other every day like so if anyone ever pretended to work at the Premier League which did happen <laughs> so, no they don't I know everyone in the building <laughs> that's 
brilliant god that's amazing you just wouldn't have expected that like yeah you wouldn't expect it to be so small so people would claim things or claim to really know people really well and then gonna know you don't know it's really <laughs> that's hilarious but it did it did mean it was a good grounding Richard Scudamore who is chief exec you know had really high standards of everything like literally high standards about every letter that went out of the building I mean this shows how small it was at one stage you couldn't write a letter and it was a letter to a football club without Richard seeing it first Wow, so he was very had a lot every kind of a part playing everything. So, yeah, he was like totally involved in everything, and and there was a real you knew what the standard was they expected, and I found it frustrating sort of as the years went on that I felt that had been lost because as we grew bigger, people didn't know Richard, they didn't know what expected. Those of us that had been there and worked more closely with him would say that is not up to Richard's standard. We should not, you know, that should not go out, or we can't publish that, or whatever. But yeah, people wouldn't always know that that's, you know, he was really like, like really completely correctly, in my view, really fussy about like grammar and punctuation and just, you know. Yeah, yeah. Everything being 100% correct, you know, he's like, this is the Premier League and we're going to be really under scrutiny. And he was so right because he could see even before we were under scrutiny, he could see the level it was going to go to. And he was like preparing for that then going, we need to be ready for this. And it. You know, really did change to the level that, you know, we did have like full on investigations into us where, you know, investigative firms would literally go through everyone's emails. And I'd always feel really glad that I'd always had that view. Actually, I think I'd had it because I'd had friends working at um, in the music industry, like a friend of mine at the BPI had literally had somebody go through, a journalist go through her bins. Wow. Because she dealt with MPs and it was all to do with like some expenses scandal about tickets for concerts. And there's her letter on the front page of the mirror. And I used to say to everybody, everything you write down, think about it on the front page of the Daily Mirror and how it's going to look. Yeah. Yeah. So real like standards built in, but also a bit of kind of being wary of. But I guess, Mm. did you did you find that as as a woman being you know, trying to, I mean, I was going to ask as well how many other women were there because I, I find as a woman kind of always having to triple check and I've spoken to some mm-hmm. of my friends, women in football, that it's a real thing that women seem to have triple check and everything to make sure all your facts are right, everything's mm-hmm. perfect because you almost feel like any one thing could just not, that's it, like you're kind of knocked off. I think I think that's true actually, yes. If I think about it now, I definitely think that the women that I worked with were were much more careful in that way Mm. you know and much more conscious of that I mean there would have been there were quite a few women actually really it's a good question I'm trying to think maybe maybe like at least a quarter maybe almost well because quite a lot of the roles were admin in the early days you know you always actually had quite a high number of of women but you know then as it grew you realized that the roles that, that the women were doing the admin Mm. and the men would be doing the more senior roles so in the time I was there there was always probably what at least one other woman who is at the seniority that I got to okay wow. um but there are more now actually but I mean the place is a lot bigger they employ a lot more people so a lot of that has changed but one thing I noticed and I'm sure this isn't um this is not limited to football I'm sure but it, it feels as though women are we get pigeonholed more easily into doing certain things like because they see what you're doing and so guys who were doing really well would sort of flip between departments would suddenly get promoted into doing something completely different because they were just seen as an all-round good person yeah 
who'd been to the right school and knew what they were doing and all of that. And so they would be seen as just a capable person that could move around. It was like in government where it's like, if you're just seen as a capable person, it doesn't matter what department you can do, we know you can turn your hand to anything. Whereas the women, it would be, but, but you've, you do such and such. And we haven't got a job for someone doing such and such. I remember somebody saying about, about one person, oh, well, you know, she's only a receptionist. I won't embarrass her, but she's got a very, very high flying job now. <laughs> Because this thing as well is, it, as you said, like admin roles, receptionist, you know, that stereotypical, what they call mm. secretary roles are always yeah. so, women are pigeonholed into them. But those jobs actually generally cover so many things. So uh, yes. You get so many skills from them. Totally. And they're the people who make things tick, you know. Yeah. We actually employed quite a lot of Australians for a while, particularly when we had temps, because there'd be a lot of, you know, a lot of Australian women working in London just wanting to do these jobs and they're all so brilliant at all of those sort of computer skills but yeah it was it tended to be more they tended to be seen as more admin based whereas some of them were just were the best brains that I've ever come across Mm -hmm. yeah and it's just as you said being pigeonholed it's I think it definitely still happens um so there was an interview I was reading and it said you said that there were occasions where you had to visit chief executives of clubs and explain you really needed them to be on board. Like, mm. how was that as a woman? Did, did you feel pushback? And was it, I can imagine even now, in the, in, in it, it, with the industry has moved on a little bit at least, that still that being very daunting as a woman going in. Actually, funnily enough, it, it didn't seem that daunting at the time. Maybe, maybe I had more the arrogance of youth or I just thought I knew what I was talking about. Um, I found generally, to be honest, within clubs, I got a lot of respect from from people, from the men. I think because they knew that I knew my football, then I didn't feel that there was pushback because I was a woman. I think what I did feel, I was talking to them about like the fan experience, you know, about improving the way that they did things behind the scenes. And I think the stuff I was talking about was difficult to convince them of because it just wasn't always their priority. Yeah. You know, culturally, football had to go a long way from the way it had been treating fans, you know, so so it could take a it would, could take a while for some of them to shift just because they just didn't see that as being something that they ought to do, you know. Yeah. But I actually found from the chief execs, I got probably this is weird, actually, probably the most respect in a lot of ways. And they were nearly all men. That's incredible. I, I did, really. I mean, I found. I remember getting in, I remember seeing an email that one of them had written to my boss saying that um, they couldn't have achieved something without me and, you know, just going out of their way to say, you know, she's been brilliant and we're so grateful for her help because I'd sorted out this big issue they had with some fan groups and whatever. And yeah, some of the others would contact me before shareholders meetings to say to me, you know, we need to get this over the line. Can you make sure you help? We want to make sure the vote goes the right way. Yeah, I did, I did find within football, actually within the clubs, yeah, that I, I didn't, I generally didn't find that I got that sort of pushback. I think I may have done initially, and maybe I wasn't always aware of it. I always think it's hard to know how you would be treated if you were a man. Yes, that's very true. That's so true. You, know, so you, you really don't notice the difference, you know. I, I, Yeah, so it's difficult to, it's difficult to know. I do think that when I left working for the Premier League and went freelance and stuff. I do think that probably, I think if I was a man, the it would have been easier. Because there's that just sort of old boys network where they just sort of employ each other. 
Yeah. And I, I think as well, I don't know whether you would have ever got this definitely in journalism where, you know, people say you ask, oh, what, what's your recommendation for networking? And they say things like, um, oh, just go for a drink with them after. And, you know, if you, you meet them, just ask them for a drink. And you think as a woman, you can't do that, though. Yeah. First yeah. of all, you put yourself in, in danger, potentially. Mm-hmm. But also, if you're not doing that, then you could potentially be looking like you're being inappropriate. Totally. And I think that's that's one of the issues. There's still an awful lot that goes on on the golf courts, for instance. Mm. And some of us that would at one time wondered whether we needed to go off for golf lessons in private and then suddenly like become brilliant <laughs> at golf and you know, turn up on the golf course. And then we went, you know, we don't even like golf. And why is it that men can go for golf on a work day and not have to take a day leave? We were like, can we just all go to the spa and like take that as like leave, you know? Yeah, right. Like there's so much culturally that is odd. And this, again, this isn't limited to football, but it occurred to me one time when I was preparing for a meeting in Manchester, um, staying in the Malmaison, I think, you know, very nice hotel and thinking, if I go down to the bar where all the guys are um, and have a few drinks, that's all on expenses. But I don't want to do that because I want to have a really clear head in the morning. And I'd learned that sometimes going to the bar with the guys for a few drinks could lead to people getting the wrong idea about why you're there. So I thought, no, I actually would rather go to the spa. I'd rather go and have like a jacuzzi or a steam or something or a treatment so that I can feel really on my game for my presentation tomorrow. That would not have been on expenses. And yet, yet whiskey would have been. It's crazy. What, what sort of culture is it where you go, actually something that is going to help you actually be more prepared for your job? So, yeah strange but yeah I, I think I think you're right I think that networking stuff you do miss out on yeah also I wanted to get I want to speak about because this is really interesting you were a senior consultant on Tottenham's new stadium mm. Mm. can you tell us a bit about that because I think that's also really interesting yeah that was that was a lot of fun it was really just before they'd started the stadium I mean it was sad because because the reason that they brought me in was their wonderful support and officer Jonathan Waite had died very suddenly and he he was a good friend of mine. He was amazing, Jonathan. It was like it, it ripped the heart out of the football supporter liaison community, to be honest, when Jonathan went. It was extraordinary. Um, and they just not felt able to replace him, which is completely understandable, to be honest. I don't think anybody would have wanted to step in and do his job because it wouldn't have felt right. Like the, people are quite tight knit in football, you know. So what they wanted to do was to recruit, but they understood that that needed to be handled sensitively. You know, that people weren't just going to go, oh, I know, I'll rock up and take Jonathan's job. So it was partly about sort of recruiting a new team because other people had left and there was they needed to recruit new people for the new stadium. Um, but also just looking at all of the access issues because they just got a little bit nervous about whether they'd got that right. It was a little bit late in the day because it was only a few weeks before they opened. <laughs> and we did still have some things that needed fixing, actually. In the stadium, because they really wanted it to be the most accessible stadium. So they wanted all of the seat heights to be right. And there were some odd things like um, as a not just the architects on that stadium, but everybody had miscalculated when um, supporters stand in the new standing areas. That the rake is different, basically, because you stand in a different position than you would if you were sitting because you'd lean forward, which actually affects the view of the people in the wheelchairs on the platform behind. So it was it was often quite detailed, things like that, that I was looking at. So, yeah, I was just brought in initially just on quite a short term basis, but then was there until the pandemic started, really. 
Wow, that's amazing. So you were still working even after the stadium had been? Yeah, I was only brought in really quite late in the day, just a few weeks before they started. And it was just like they're going, I think we're a bit light. We need a bit of help. We need someone to come in and work out what whether we're a bit light and who we need to do these jobs. Um, and then they ended up finally opening the stadium really quickly all of a sudden, because I think everyone had got used to it just being put back. Suddenly it was, no, it's for real this time. And then they got to a Champions League semi-final and then they got to the final. And I had to be the UEFA contact for all of that because basically wasn't sort of anyone else doing those roles, which was really interesting being a Liverpool fan working for Tottenham on the (laughs) Liverpool-Tottenham final. That's amazing. And were you, so how were you, were you discussing with UEFA fans? Yeah, basically once you, yeah, once you get into a final, there's a meeting. So you have to, like, we had to fly direct from Amsterdam after the crazy Ajax match that Tottenham had. So I missed Liverpool-Barcelona. I missed all the most amazing games in history. So I missed that because I was in Amsterdam with Tottenham. And then basically after... A very late night in Amsterdam, we flew direct to Madrid the next morning for the planning meeting with UEFA because they sit people from the two clubs down and you work all sorts of things out because there's an awful lot of planning that needs to go into putting on a final. And so they you have the meeting at the stadium where the final is going to be and they show you the stadium and, you know, talk. So you get the ticket office manager will be there. The club secretary will be there usually, the press people. Um, what was interesting about that meeting actually was it was dominated by women. Really? Yeah. And and it was weird because no one commented on this at the time, but I thought, I wonder if this has ever happened before. I think it was maybe one bloke, actually, on our trip. Wow, that must have been Tottenham. It was, yeah, because they're very, I mean, Tottenham are very good at, you know, they have a lot of women in leadership roles. Um, and then for Liverpool as well, um, there were two, at least two women from their side. And you only have like about four or five people, so... Wow, that's that must have felt. Did it? Did you feel it at the time? Like you know, so used to being surrounded by men, and then you it must have felt like a bit oh surreal being. It didn't feel. It didn't feel that surreal because there are more women now working in those sort of roles, and particularly actually in stuff like support liaison and customer service, those classic sort of roles. There would be a lot of women in those roles, so that wasn't so unusual. But yeah, it sort of struck me almost afterwards, really, that I thought this is actually quite unusual, probably for UEFA. And I think also they they usually expect there to be a little bit of tension between the clubs because you're having to make decisions about who who gets what in a way, in the way it's all being set up. Some things you just don't get a choice in. But, you know, it's a bit like, so you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to be staying in this hotel and you're going to be in that hotel and does that work for you and all the rest of it. And we were just working stuff out between us because we've known each other for years. Like I was literally at primary school with the guy who was the police contact for Merseyside Police. I used to work with the mum of their SLO, like, and I'd never known her for years. So we were all old friends, you know. So, yeah, I think it was probably one of the easier meetings they've had. The women had all known each other for years, you know, and were just like, yeah, yeah. Will you do that? We'll do this. Yeah, that's okay. Sorted. No egos in the room, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's a stereotypical thing, isn't it? But I think generally Mm. women tend to want to work together rather than against each other. Totally. And I, I did find that with the with the supporter liaison people actually from the from often like big rival teams, there'd be so much close working together. They'd be like absolutely best of friends. The women who would work at like Liverpool and Everton, for instance, and Tottenham and Arsenal, they're really, really close. Like there's a group of women I know who work at Tottenham 
Arsenal and Chelsea. And there's only one from West Ham, but they all go on holiday together. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> you I wouldn't think that. it, would you? You know, yeah. But, but because you have to sort of, you have to work together when your teams are playing each other. Yeah. No, so in certain roles, that's the most important relationship to the ones outside of your club, really. Mm. Not necessarily within the club. And I think, yeah, I think the women are are good at that, as you say, because there's more of a collegiate way of working. Whereas UEFA is quite formal in the way they do things. It's very formalized, all of their meetings. And I, I do think that's quite a male thing. Yeah. There's a very male structure, it feels, at, at UEFA, just in the way things are, are done. Interesting. And you also went, so I attended a webinar um, about a year ago, actually, it's probably almost exactly a year ago. And you were speaking about being a consultant at Tottenham's new stadium. I would love you to tell the story again about, um, it was about the free sanitary product products. You were trying to push that. <laughs> yes. That is hilarious. Oh gosh, I'd forgotten that. Yes. The big thing was about the design. The design had to be right. Um, yeah, I was trying to push this and it was odd because I think they got to the point where they'd spent so many billions or whatever on the stadium. They were like, no more, nobody come with anything else. <laughs> and then, you know, like we've absolutely eked out every last bean that we can ever spend on the stadium. That comes me going, can we, can we have free sanitary product? <laughs> and I was like, look, there's no point in having this amazing billion pound stadium without this. Like it just doesn't make sense. Everybody else is doing it. So yeah, I really, I had to go and find basically sort of like plastic you know, containers that didn't look plastic um, and just completely fitted with the brand because the toilets are very, very smart, which, you know, I was pleased about because I wouldn't have wanted to put some, putting something in there that just jarred somehow wouldn't have been right. But there was a lot of focus on, yeah, I had to find the right, I even had to find the right tampon colours. They were like, can they be yellow and blue? And I was like, well, that restricts the sizes that women can use. But yeah, I was like, oh, okay, we can do that. So we had these very, very smart little project trays. But then I remember one of the guys saying, like, I'm really behind this, but like, you know, well, do you think they might just get stolen? And I was like, look, A, A if it's free, you can't steal it. Because <laughs> it's free. And B, when you go to a football match, the last thing you want is tampons falling out of your pocket or your bag. <laughs> it's like you don't go to a football match with anything you can put them in. And they had a really restrictive bag policy, actually. So there'd have been a clear plastic bag, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, I really don't think that's going to happen. So, yeah. And, you know, people were so pleased because I, I would say these things are an indicator. Like we had women emailing us just saying, I cannot believe you've done that. I cannot believe you've thought of that. You know, that that you've thought about that. I always say diversity is about being welcomed somewhere, feeling like you were expected. Totally. You know? And so, you know, you'd go to hospitality or whatever, which was great. We got a lot of hospitality at clubs. But, you know, when the gift they give you would be the cufflinks, you'd think, yeah, you really weren't expecting me, were you? And, and yeah, exactly. It's a, it's even a subconscious thing, isn't it? I'm just thinking of those little gifts that would just be so male and you just think, yeah, that just basically says to me, you're not really part of this. Yeah. You can come and watch the match, but we weren't expecting you to be here. So true. And I remember actually going to Swansea once and hosting a table and Swansea asked me before for the names of the people. And I was like, we're not even quite sure, to be honest, who's coming yet. Do you really need this? And they said, well, we just need to know their genders, if that's OK. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, why do you want to know that? And they said, well, because we have a different range of, of gifts. 
And I was like, okay. And actually they did it well. You know, it didn't, it also didn't make you feel like what the girly thing. And that, you know, it was just like there is different range here. You can, you know, yeah. So yeah, I would say just, you know, think of things that are a bit more neutral than some cufflinks. Yeah. Yeah. It's really not that difficult. No, it's Even not if that it's really not one that thing hard. for everyone. It's really yeah. not that difficult. Yeah. It's not That's- hard to do. But yeah, there was there was quite a bit of pushback and then they realized it was absolutely the thing to do when everyone was really pleased. But I just think that's hilarious. I just thought a man who says that it's clear they've never spoken to their wives, their daughters, or anything exactly. about how it is yeah. being a woman and opening your bag and a load of tampons falling out. Like that's not yeah. what you want to do anyway. <laughs> exactly. It's like you're not gonna shove them in your pockets or something. <laughs> like so funny. So I said to be honest, if people are if people are that poverty stricken, you know. They're unlikely to be affording a ticket here for a start. Yes. And, and if and if they've eked out every last bean and it means they can't afford a tampon, well, good luck to them. They can take as many as they like as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. Like, you know, just support that. So, yeah, it's it's odd the sort of the pushback you get. I mean, I found it with stuff like um, baby changing facilities that, that clubs would sort of say, but we don't get demand for it. Or we don't. And I just said, you know what? It's about the message that you're giving. It's about a message that says to women, if you do want to bring your child, you know, we're gonna, we've thought of that. We've yeah. got a good facility for you. So true. I don't care if it's never used. I was like, I really don't care. It's like prayer rooms. I was like, I honestly don't care if no one ever uses it. Yeah. You need to be able to say to people that you've got a prayer room in case it's needed. And of course, it was mostly staff that used it at Tottenham. Yeah. It was on a match day. You had an awful lot of Muslim staff who wanted to use a prayer room. It was too small. And just making anyone, staff, fans, anyone who's mm. attending feel welcome is, is, is so true. It's so important. Yeah, and staff, staff often aren't thought about. So, I mean, just things like the food that they would get, you know, when they're working. Like, we've got to look at what your population of staff is. And if it's largely Muslim, yeah, then you've got to think about that in a different way, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think I think people tend to focus sometimes on the obvious things for fans, but don't think about actually the people who are running the stadium. Well, speaking of your, um, maybe if you could just give a little lowdown of your company. So, so the brand is Aposto. Um, and what I do now is I set up a tech company. So, but um, bit of a departure in a way. Um, but the reason I did this is because one of the things that I'd seen that was a big issue in um, clubs and in safety briefings was that safety briefings are just given verbally and basically nobody really necessarily knows what they're doing on the day say the match day workers you know all turn up on a match day they're the only people the fans ever meet generally but they're not really getting very briefed in what's going on at the club so we've set up a digital briefing system so it goes to their phones in advance and it can all be tracked and it's completely transforming the way safety briefings are done which is great really because I got into this business because of safety in the first place it's amazing you've kind of almost done a loop round haven't you it's almost like I've gone back to like why was I doing this in the first place well I was doing this because I wanted fans to be safer and actually I don't think they're that safe with the current system I don't think that it's safe the way that the briefings are done um I wouldn't want to be a safety officer at a football club without something like this because I think it's really really hard um I don't I don't envy any of the safety officers and there is a really high tenor of a turnover of them at the moment a lot of lot of them are women actually who are really leading the way in safety wow that's really like the ones that are probably the most respected in the business actually are from the women but yeah I think in tech it's really challenging for women actually I'm I'm learning how challenging it is for them I saw that you had actually recently a a tweet of yours which I just was flabbergasted by where you had said um just missed a client meeting because I wasn't invited to it 
The client invited my male colleague but, left, colleague, but left me out because he thought I was just doing the admin. I'm the CEO. Yeah. It's just, I just was, yeah. I mean, for you, for the amount of experience you have and just you've been in the industry for such a long mm-hmm. time, that must have just felt, I can't it, even imagine. It sort of floored me because I think, I think in sport that wouldn't happen, I think, because people, even if they don't know me, a lot of them will know of my name or whatever. You know, so I guess I've been in a sort of comfortable position in that sense that generally people will know who I am or whatever, you know, and know what I'm doing. Or most of our clients so far have been people that we know. So inevitably they sort of know something about my background or whatever. But this was in a different sector. So this was somebody in a completely different sector from sport or anything who had contacted us. And yet it took me a while to realise I was... without boring you with the details, I tried to sum it up and it was quite a complicated thing to do with meetings being postponed, but you can't explain all that in a tweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically I was, the meeting, he, someone had tried to change the meeting time, but they hadn't told me. And they said, I I, I I, told everyone on the call or whatever. And I was thinking, well, no, you didn't. Like, I'm I'm the main person on the call. And it took me a while for the penny to drop. And then I realised when we looked at what had happened that I hadn't been invited. And... I mean, it's a lesson in a way that if you're a startup and, you know, you are the person who does everything, you are going to be the person who organizes the meetings. You are going to be the person who picks up emails that come in that are cold calls from your website or whatever, you know, you're going to have to do all of that. Um, and despite the fact I had founder and CEO in my email footer, I just think- and I was just that particular day, I felt so angry because it's a really good client. I still hope we can work with them. Um, we've not complained to them and I don't intend to. Yeah, it was, it was really, it floored me because I thought this is an amazing client and now we've sort of lost the opportunity. Like we haven't completely, but I know how hard it is to get meetings in the diary with big clients. So like we've now got almost sort of start again going through dates and all of that. Hopefully it will still work out. But I think also it came off the back of a few other things mm. that had annoyed me. It, it came off the back of, um, Graeme Sooners had made the comment a few days before. Yeah. But it being a man's game. And I think I was more pissed off at some of my friends' responses to that. Really? Yeah. Men who'd been like, well, get over it. And what's the big deal? And I was just thinking. So I think I tweeted sort of, it was like a culmination of this frustration of a few things that were happening. I nearly deleted it. Because once it started really taking off and I started getting some, the normal abuse that you would get, I started thinking, Honestly, maybe I shouldn't have tweeted about this. And maybe the client is going to realize it's them. And maybe I should just delete it. This is a really bad idea. But then it's the only tweet I've ever had that's gone truly viral. It was like 4 million views. It was it was just insane. And I still haven't read them all, but there are two and a half thousand comments. And the vast majority are from women who've had similar experiences. And that was when I realized I cannot delete this because I'm I'm deleting this whole chain. And I think there's been a couple of articles written about it now as well. And yeah, it just shows you the everyday experiences. And some of them were really incredible and emotional. Yeah, because I read some of the comments, actually. I think I saw it quite mm-hmm. early on and I read some of the comments. But I think it was amazing because for me as well, for, you know, for women coming into the industry and or into any male dominated industry mm-hmm. and the frustrations you have that you can't always put them into words or you can't always mm-hmm. you can put it into words, but you can't. They're so subtle. Yes. People can say, oh, well, maybe it's just this. Maybe it's just that. Maybe, yeah. you know, it's never it's never really overt anymore. So it's very difficult to get that. 
Yeah, but it, I think you're so right. It is those subtle things that happen that are quite hard to, in on their own, they don't sound like anything. Exactly. But it's sort of just revealing of the culture and how people are thinking. Yeah. You know, my, my good friend and mentor, Connie Atkinson, said to me many years ago, never make the coffee until they know who you are. Love that. And I just thought that was a really good point. Like, don't go in the meeting and be the person who pours the tea and the coffee because there's a really good chance they'll think that you are the, the admin person or they will treat you differently. One of the things I loved about Richard Scudmore actually is that whenever we had meetings where there would be a coffee pot and teapot in the room, he would pour it for everybody. And I always thought that was in it. Richard doesn't do anything by accident. You know, like that was that was deliberate. He would not he would not have sort of left it to me, for instance. He would just and that that basically leveled everyone in the meeting that basically said to people, I, I am not the big cheese. who thinks I'm the big I am here. You know, we'd have fan groups in for a meeting and they'd expect people to be really awful with them. And Richard would be making the tea or getting around in, in the pub or whatever. But, yeah, I thought that was really important. Once people know who you are, absolutely pull people a coffee. Like, why would you not? Yeah. But I thought that was that is that bit about establishing who you are. Yeah, it's so true. And it's those little tiny things that mm. not many people would notice, but it all it all adds to the subconscious of how men look at women, women. Uh, mm. you know, even like that, those Graham Sooners comments. Like I think when I looked at it, you know, you can people are saying, Oh, he meant he was referring to a man's game and it was a men's game. But it's not about that. It's not, it's about the the subconscious yeah. that, that then young kids, young boys watching that. They learn that that's the way it should be. And that's, and it exactly. just keeps going. And, and to me, it actually sort of, it was actually quite insulting to men who are not the sort of men that he wants to see playing football as well. It was like, you know, I don't like this sort of skillful trickery sort of, you know, players who don't foul type sort of players, you know, real men foul. And no, those guys are real men. How dare you suggest that they're not real men? So I thought, yeah, for me, it was broader than that. It was that whole cultural piece, really. It is totally. It's like the kind of definition of toxic masculinity, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, we'll do a final question. I'm asking everyone this question. What do you think that needs to be done or can be done to make further improvements for women in not just necessarily, well, in football, obviously, because that's what the podcast is about, but but in your industry too now and tech and in general, just to make women feel more welcome? Oh, that is a good question. Do you think it's about an awareness of these subtle things that we've spoken about, actually? And I don't I don't know how you change that quickly, really. I, I think it's a real challenge how you get that message across, that the language, as you've said, is important. You know, I, I think that if people don't understand that those small sort of microaggressions are very revealing or can really sort of beat people down, beat women down, then it is it is hard to change that. But I do think, I do think that men, somehow we need men to see what it's like to be in women's shoes, really. Like I, I saw a tweet, yeah, I think it was a tweet I saw the other day that said, um, I know it was a friend of mine who'd said that her daughter had said it. <laughs> she posted this on LinkedIn. She said that um, her daughter had said about women's football, how about we ban men from playing football for 50 years and see how they like it? amazing the daughter's about like nine or something and I just thought oh this is brilliant like can you imagine if we said to men you're gonna be banned for 50 years I think that's so true though because I think putting even just things like putting men into a, a meeting say a big meeting room where yeah. it's all women and putting one yeah. man in there I think this as we say it's it's sort of these subtle things and it's like it's like 
for me, it's still the norm in our in our working lives and in everything is is sort of the male default. I mean, I I've, I I tend to give invisible women out to a lot of people. If you've yes, not read Invisible Women, yeah, you know it's such a good book. I recommend it to anybody. Read Caroline Crado Perez because to me that has really helped, and I've I've given it to quite a lot of people I've worked with, men and women, and they've they've said I get it now. Like often men have said I really understand now why 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 you know what the issues are and the impact that this has when basically you know you're not even as safe being a being a a, a woman um you know because things like life jackets and all sorts of things are basically designed for men you know stab vests um are designed for men like cars are designed for men like that's why it's really uncomfortable sometimes driving because you're driving a car that was not designed for a woman to drive it so I think there's a lot of lot of things about work that are sort of default male that we don't even realize are even like traits that are seen as, you know, good traits, if you like, you know, certain ways of handling meetings like women do talk more. Women use more words per day than men do. But it's seen as though that's a bad thing to communicate. Mm-hmm. I often wonder if we could change it so that the default would be the way that women operate. Yeah. And then if the men are, it's like, well, you're not talking enough. You're yeah. being too quiet. <laughs> Wouldn't that be incredible? Well, thank you so much, Kathy. You've been absolutely fabulous. So interesting to hear about your life in, in football and good luck with everything with Aposto and your future endeavours. Thank you. Same to you. Good luck with your career. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening, guys. If you or anyone you know work in an interesting role within football or you think of any roles you'd like to hear more about, feel free to reach out and I'll see what I can do. In the meantime, please subscribe and follow the Off Limits podcast on Twitter and Instagram at offlimits underscore pod. And of course, keep listening for more great stories and interesting conversations. <laughs>